The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Tuesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your two, nay, three, bio-exorcists of big-ticket trivia. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. And today we are joined by... Really, you know, if, if if there's the fifth Beatle, there's the third <laughs> TMI. TMI trivia. What are we? What's a T? I need a T word that begins Stop with. Stop it. Titan. Taco Titan. Titan. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Tit- Titans of talking. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is why. I am so happy to welcome with open arms and an open heart our very own producer, Michael Alder June. Hello. Oh, my God. Welcome. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. Oh, we're so happy to finally have because I feel so bad because June is the one who makes us sound coherent. <laughs> and so in, in, and she'll be listening through to all these episodes and texting us all these incredible insights that we should have brought up and all these great jokes and all these things. And it's like, okay, well, you know what? Finally, June is, is visiting New York and staying with me. And you know what? It's time. I can't believe it's <laughs> taking this long. And we're talking about one of her very favorite movies. It took a trip through the hell mouth of JFK <laughs> to get me on the show. Yeah, a surprising amount of similarities with the afterlife as depicted by this movie. Um, <laughs> this is shockingly the first Tim Burton project that we've done. Uh, oh. Yeah, we. I, I will forever be um, a Nightmare Before Christmas kid because I was exactly the right age for that movie to come out uh, and break my little heart uh, as a little spooky <laughs> child. Um, and I think as an adult, I have glommed on to Ed Wood as like the most kind of mature and least annoying of the, of the iconic Tim Burton movies. I can definitely understand that. But I just... Well, what are we talking about? I don't think we actually told folks what we're talking about. Bio-Exorcist so was read. the giveaway, you ner- you herb. What other... There's not, that's, not a rec- that's another thing I love about this movie. That is not a recognized 
term in anything other than the Beetlejuice cinematic universe. What is a bio exit? Although I guess the Ghostbusters have that. No, because the ghosts aren't trying to get rid of the living in Ghostbusters, or at mm. least they're not referred to that way. Maybe the Frighteners, but Peter Jackson with Michael J. Fox kind of takes like a similar tack to it. But I don't really think I think that term is entirely unique to that to this movie. Yeah, I don't know. I love this movie when I was a kid. It is so aggressively weird. It has this bizarre mythos that it doesn't really explain. Um, it's gruesome in some ways, but as as you referred to it earlier, in a kind of um, haunted house uh, uh, kitsch way. Um, Orchard haunted house, I think is what I said. Hayride haunted hey, house. Yes, hayride haunted house. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean... I, it's honestly funny to me it took this long to, for this movie to get a sequel, which is the other reason we're talking about it, yeah. is that this year, news finally broke that Beetlejuice 2 uh, is happening, which is very sad or great for Michael Keaton, depending on how you're looking at it, because he has now fully become the character that he was playing in Birdman, which is an actor <laughs> an actor forced into re rehashing his old roles for rent money. Um First in uh, 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 as Batman in the Flash, and now as Beetlejuice in Beetlejuice Two, beat harder. <laughs> uh, I I just want to make an observation that I didn't realize. I this movie came out in March. I would have assumed that it was a Halloween movie. You know, other than the death, it's not like a seasonal film either. I mean, it's it's I can't really even like doesn't even have that much of a sense of time like i don't i only if if you were like what time of year does beetlejuice take place and i would be like june it takes place in a kitchen <laughs> i don't know it, it there's it's seasonless yeah exactly. it takes place in a afterlife desert yep and in waiting rooms yeah 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 and it, and, a, and, a, and a farmhouse and in what is i think it, i think they do make mention of it being connecticut anyway so June, what you you uh, have a very you were very attached to this film. Yes, this was one of the few movies that I watched over and over and over again when I was a kid. Uh, my parents adhered to the outdated already uh, medium of the Betamax, <laughs> onto which they recorded all sorts of movies uh, from HBO's free weekends. So I watched a lot of Goonies, mm -hmm. a lot of. Indiana Jones and Beetlejuice was maybe the top of that holy trinity. And yeah, so between the movie and the Saturday morning cartoon that later followed it, mm -hmm. and my secretly wanting to be Lydia Deeds, <laughs> I was very enamored with this movie when I was like seven through 10 years old. Yeah. And I believe you dressed up as a. Uh... Oh, yeah, I got to see this. For Halloween, when I was nine, I, <laughs> I really wanted to be Beetlejuice for Halloween. This was two or three years after the movie came out. There was no way to pull together like a Beetlejuice costume. And Halloween night, my mom took me out to a mire like, in our suburban Michigan town. What's and a mire? It's kind of like Kroger, our target. Mm. Okay. And we were going through the racks of children's clearance pajama aisle. <laughs> and those telltale white and black stripes jumped out. And there was like this old Saturday morning cartoon pajama, like merchandising tie-in. So I got to be Beetlejuice for Halloween wearing pajamas around my neighborhood. And yeah. then immediately after Halloween, we moved down to Georgia. 
So I woke up at dawn, still dressed. November 1st. <laughs> still dressed as Beetlejuice, somewhere driving through Kentucky. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the lost like level on Oregon Trail. <laughs> well, you can... I So looking at this picture, and, and first of all, the makeup is incredible. Uh, but looking at this picture... <laughs> the corpse paint. Yeah, the corpse paint. Looking at this picture, you can tell it immediately it's from the animated series because in the movie, his, he wears a white shirt white, with it. Yeah. And then in the, and the series had him... Had him with a pink uh, undergarment. You know, I re- uh, his pink ensemble is his wedding uh, look in the in the in the movie. Um, yeah, we should say for the listeners at home that I have sent out a photograph of me dressed as Beetlejuice at nine years old, and it is perfect. We will definitely be sharing that when we post this. <laughs> Put that in the uh, in the show notes. Okay, I don't have that that level of uh, attachment to this. Is you know, I, I feel bad because after all these wonderful things that both of you said about, you know, how much this movie means to you. And, you know, unlike you, Kygel, I take no pleasure in denigrating stuff that you actually like. <laughs> um, I didn't really engage with this movie much as a kid. Uh, spooky, scary, creepy stuff. It really was never my thing. And just so the general tenor of this movie just kind of freaked me out. And uh, plus I took the title literally. So I thought for a time that this movie had the, something to do with, juice made from beetles which just grossed me out a lot so that was another part of the reason why i didn't really watch it so i don't have much to share from the childhood perspective but i would like to say that the husband of my first boss wrote the broadway musical version of beetlejuice from a few years back Hmm. uh his name is anthony king and his wife is the incredibly talented writer and podcaster kate spencer who is the co-host of the very popular podcast forever 35 and the author of the New York Times best-selling book in a New York minute. Although I don't know if it was best-selling. If it's not, it should be. If, it, if it's not, it will be after this. Shout out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she was my first boss and editor at uh, VH1.com a long time ago. And she's awesome. So shout She's going to go company. to her publisher like, where did all these sales yeah. come from? <laughs> oh, you got the TMI bump, honey. <laughs> I would like to say June out of the three of us does the best cigar chomping executive. Oh. I mean, the cigar chomping executive in this story is David Geffen, which is like more of a like little little boy, <laughs> like a, a small a small boy. Um, but please, uh, sir, I'd like some more Beetlejuice. <laughs> well, from the much darker original shooting script to the perils of building a bridge in Vermont for the film, and that's not a setup to a joke. To the gross, <laughs> gross look that they landed on for the titular character. And an update on its long-delayed sequel, here's everything you didn't know about Beetlejuice. Goth icon Tim Burton, or at least <laughs> at least mainstream goth icon, sort of goth for dummies icon. I like Tim Burton, I just, you know, he's not like... It's so easy to give him sh- He's not Eisterzende Neubauten, you know, <laughs> or like the birthday party. He's not like legit goth. He's like, uh, you know, your mom's idea of goth. Anyway, <laughs> hot topic. Yeah, he was born in Burbank, uh, made some shorts while he was a student at the California Institute of the Arts, where he was studying animation. And one of them called Stock of the Celery Monster, which I have not seen, managed to get in the eyes of the House of Mouse 
and they offered him an apprenticeship at its animation division, where he picked up work as an animator, storyboard artist, graphic designer, art director, and concept artist on films like The Fox and the Hound, Tron, and even The Black Cauldron, although uh, you would be hard-pressed to identify his touch on any of those, except for possibly The Black Cauldron. Um, And so while at Disney in 1982, Burton made his first short, Vincent, uh, which is a six-minute black-and-white stop-motion film based on a poem written by him, uh, which depicts a young boy who fantasizes that he, he is his hero, Vincent Price, and it was narrated by Vincent Price. Um, I thought it was an animated version of the Don McLean song, Vincent. You would. Starry, starry night, yeah. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Uh, Jude's head <laughs> is literally in her hands right now. Uh, and Vince <laughs> two disapproving goth-adjacent <laughs> friends. Vincent, uh, Vincent... I can only lighten so much. <laughs> Vincent Price is in... Um, his last role is in Edward Scissorhands, right? I think you're right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so that's a friendship that's very adorable. And then, so two years later, uh, Tim Burton's next short, Frankenweenie, uh, which is about a young boy's attempt to resurrect his beloved dog after it's hit by a car, uh, comes out. Well, sort of doesn't. Uh, despite the film starring Shelley Duvall and Daniel Stern, uh, Disney fired <laughs> fired him for using company resources to make his weird little uh, goth German expressionist passion projects, uh, which is <laughs> such a great premise for a movie, though. Sad and hilarious. Well, I think they yeah. did, did. They see this just proves I haven't kept up with him in like a decade and change. Um, didn't they make a, a CGI a live or a live action Frankenweenie? I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was 2012. I believe they showed it in front of some Disney feature. I can't remember, though. It might have even been Alice in Wonderland. It may have yeah. been. Did you ever see uh, The Family Dog, his short-lived sitcom, animated sitcom? Tim Burton's Family What? Yeah. No. Oh, look this up. It's so interesting. I think they only aired, I want to say, like... Oh, Brad Bird. He exec produced this, but this was... It was the first and collaboration Spielberg. between Spielberg and and Burton and created by Brad Bird. That is wild. One critic called it one of the biggest fiascos in television animation history on both a creative and commercial commercial level. In spite, but in many ways because, of the high-powered talent behind the project. <laughs> Savage. <laughs> um, I put that on my tombstone. <laughs> so, while nobody at Disney liked him, the film and Burton did have one prominent Fan, and that was Paul Rubens. Naturally. Pee Wee Herman himself. Rubens chose Burton to direct the cinematic spinoff of his show, the film Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which uh, was made on a budget of $8 million. Jesus. That's like nothing, right? It's, it's, that's pocket change. That's lint from, <laughs> from some executive's couch compared <laughs> to other films. But it managed to gross more than $40 million at the North American box office. So Burton was all of a sudden very bankable off of a Pee Wee Herman movie. Which I love. That had perhaps the most terrifying moment of my childhood. Large Marge. Large Marge. The, of course. Yeah. yeah. I was Large Marge. It was a couple's costume. Me and my girlfriend. <laughs> she was Pee Wee. I was Large Marge. Oh and I, I took glasses and we cut like two styrofoam spheres and hot glued them to you know, where the eyes would be and, and just put a dot in the middle of each one and um, oh walked around with my mouth open and these huge eyes. 
pretty horrifying. That's put that uh, in the show notes too, along with your Halloween outfit. <laughs> See, that's way scarier than mine. Um, the Briton is all of a sudden a hot property, and so he he's pulled into script development for the movie Batman. Uh, and but while Warner Brothers was happy to pay him to tinker on the script, they were a lot less willing to greenlight the film. So he still didn't have a next project. He said uh, to the Independent in 2018, "I was being offered any bad comedy. <laughs> it was a case of you do a bad comedy, you get offered all of the bad comedies." <laughs> is Batman? Is Tim Burton's Batman rather the um, the one that Prince did the soundtrack for? Yep. Yes. I just learned, because I was working on something about Prince, uh, the only reason he took that job was because he had a crush on Kim Bassinger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think... Uh, I, didn't they, He tried to record an album with her, yeah. and it was terrible, and he shelved it, because she is not a singer. She's an actor. I was just reading on uh, on uh, about Tim Burton's time at Disney. He was such a square peg in a round hole there that he became um, visibly depressed at work. Uh, he slept in a closet while he was there. Um, and another new animator, Andreas Dea, uh, was teamed with him to essentially try and get him up to speed. That's the guy who did the concept art for Beast. I was going to say, I, th- I thought he also did the, um, the chest hair for Gaston. Yeah, yeah. so he worked on Beauty and the Beast. But yeah, imagine, imagine you're, you're, you're like a young upstart at Disney and you get this Robert Smith looking guy who's been falling asleep in closets because he's so depressed. And they're like, yeah, uh, make it, make it work. <laughs> so anyway, the original script for Beetlejuice was written by uh, a guy named Michael McDowell, who is quite has a, a bit of a career as like a horror author. I, I didn't read too much about everything that he's done, but among among this, he wrote the script for The Jar, which was an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that was directed by Burton, funnily enough. Uh, the original draft for this was out there. Um, Beetlejuice was a winged demon and his human appearance was that uh, uh, of a Middle Eastern man. Um, he avowedly wanted to just kill the Dietz family and not just scare them. Um, and the accident, uh, you know, spoilers for a 30-year-old film, the, the Maitlands uh, <laughs> die in, the, in like the opening minutes of the film. And that was, I think they died in a house fire. Their death was very graphic. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Lydia was going to die in a fire and and be a dead ghost daughter to the Maitlands. And Beetlejuice wanted to rape her. So uh, that was the original script that they were working with. And it was so bad or so whatever that Larry Wilson, who is uh, the guy who has a story by credit on it, has talked to in, in an interview about bringing this first draft to an executive at Universal who told him, you're developing into a very good executive. You've got great taste and material. Why are you going to squander all that for this piece of shit? <laughs> <laughs> this is reminding me of the fact that, like, the movie Cool Runnings, the Jamaican bobsledding movie, had a way darker original script that had... I didn't know that. Yeah, one of them was going to get hooked on smack or something. Hell yeah. Um, oh, no. It was the screenwriter who was hooked on smack while he was writing it and the the original script was way darker as a result so uh oh my god i cannot even imagine this movie we could have got this guy or could never have got this guy michael mcdowell was once blurbed by stephen king as the finest writer of paperback originals in america today and one of his last uh his his unfinished novel uh was finished by 
Stephen King's wife, Tabitha King. So go figure. He also wrote Okay. The, so good bones. He also wrote the novelization of the film Clue. <laughs> I love how much you love your novelizations. Oh man, I, I was a big novelization kid growing Blade. up. Yeah. Blade. Yeah. Blade that, that book taught me how to curse. Um so Larry Wilson's other gig was teaching extension courses at UCLA, uh, and they had like a script. He was in, he ran like a script development class. And um, through a young woman taking that class, whose name was Marjorie Lewis, she was a development executive at the Geffen Film Company. And in early 85, Wilson, Larry Wilson, brought Marjorie Lewis the script for Beetlejuice and asked her to read it. And she said she was blown away. She said to The Ringer in 2018, and so much so that she dropped it on the desk of the then Geffen president, Eric Eisner, and told told him that she would quit if they didn't buy it. Uh, and they did, just as Burton was wrapping production on Pee-wee's Big Adventure for Warner Brothers, the Geffen film division's parent company. So it was a case of a lot of the timelines converging. And Burton told Rolling Stone in 1988, in a feature for the making of Beetlejuice, the things that interest me most are the things that potentially won't work. A lot of people have ragged on the story of Beetlejuice, but when I read it, I thought, wow, this is sort of interesting. It's very random. It doesn't follow what I would consider the Spielberg story structure. I guess I have to watch it more because I'm intrigued by things that are perverse. Like, I was intrigued that there was no story. <laughs> Jordan, take the next ones. Burton liked the bones of the story, but he jettisoned McDowell and Wilson, and he brought on a famed script doctor named Warren Scarron to bring things more into line with what he envisioned. Scarron's credited with a lot of punch-ups in the 80s. Uh, he helped Top Gun with stuff like the Righteous Brothers scene in rewrites, and he got Tom Cruise back on board with romance and more emotional development for Maverick, because I guess Tom Cruise just wanted to be flying the large planes. <laughs> Fast planes, excuse me. A less successful follow-up to Fast Car. Uh, and also burnished Jack Nicholson's Joker dialogue for Tim Burton's Batman movie. Burton met Scarron in Austin in 1986 or 1987 and spent a weekend banding about ideas for the film of Beetlejuice. Uh, Scarron introduced music to the film. He recommended that Lydia sing Percy Sledge's When a Man Loves a Woman at the end of the film. And they also arrived at the afterlife as a vision of a dull bureaucracy and made Beetlejuice more of an annoying trickster character than, you know, a winged demon who's killing and raping. And did he eat? <laughs> I feel like he ate something that he shouldn't have eaten in one of the early drafts. Maybe not. Did you guys see that, uh, that tweet or image macro or meme or whatever that was like, that's dating myself, even calling it an image macro. That was just a picture of like Beetlejuice and, and Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber and then in the mask and it was like you used to be able to make movies on a premise of what if a guy was just really annoying <laughs> <laughs> what was they mentioned earlier that uh, Tim Burton was saying that he didn't think that the early script of Beetlejuice followed a Spielberg story structure what does that mean a good one <laughs> like a conventional right. a conventional one it has a beginning and a middle and an end yeah and something with a father and a son yeah 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 the main characters don't die in a car crash in the first 10 minutes. So bolstering up the script of Beetlejuice, which, again, needed a lot of work, took a lot of work. For a lot of time on Beetlejuice, I felt like I was in court giving depositions, Tim Burton told The <laughs> Independent. I remember having script meetings that lasted for like 24 hours over the course of two days. By the end of it, we were questioning every element. 
And hilariously, Warner Brothers just wanted to call the project House Ghosts. <laughs> but Tim Burton nearly had an aneurysm when, as a joke, he suggested scared sheetless, and they wanted to go with that. <laughs> that's, I mean, scared sheetless I is think better. That's funny. Scared sheetless is better. But yeah, he's talked yeah. about in in uh, in um, I think I forget which interview he 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 doesn't give very many big in depth interviews. But yeah, at one point, house ghosts was <laughs> just that sounds like something we is that would even pitch. A pun that I'm not getting or no, just a low effort. Okay. it sounds like something that we would pitch as a joke. I, you know, one thing that I've never been clear. I mean, it's on. kind of like house guests. Oh sure. But not close enough. Yeah, it's like not yeah, enough to the clever. Yeah, such a fine line between <laughs> stupid and clever. Something about <laughs> house guests and fish smelling after three days. Is that what that? Isn't that 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 simile or something? <laughs> the old joke. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, the movie could have even been even weirder though if Tim Burton had gotten his initial casting choice. I just want to point out that Heigl has titled this section "I Myself Am Strange and Unusual." <laughs> I love that. So Burton's initial choice for the title role was Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> Which I... Just saying out loud sounds like a troll. And in response, David Geffen uh, reacted poorly. Uh, Burton said in an interview that when he pitched Sammy Davis Jr., that was the first time I ever heard crickets. <laughs> chirp, 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 chirp. So after ranting to Burton and Marjorie Lewis about why that would not work, uh, David Geffen responded with Michael Keaton, which... It's it. It feels odd to me. Like I get it. At the same time, it feels odd to like that's that's a weird card move. Yeah. So like like I see your Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> yeah, and I raise I'm you. I'm raising you, Michael Keaton, Mister. I'm raising you, Mister Mom. So uh, <laughs> odd move. Keaton had a strong start to the decade with his hits like Night Shift in 1982, Mister Mom. In 83, uh, but more recently had anchored the underwhelming and underperforming Touch and Go and a movie called Gung Ho in 86 and a movie called The Squeeze in 87. Nope. <laughs> no idea. Have not seen any of these movies. <laughs> and Keaton barely seemed to want to do it either. He turned down the role twice, telling the independent, I didn't quite get it and I wasn't looking to work, which <laughs> that's some stones yeah. right there. Uh, before accepting the role, finally. I didn't understand what he was talking about, Keaton said uh, to Charlie Rose in 2014. I said, I wish I could do it. You seem like a really nice guy, and I know that you're creative, but I don't get it. Funnily enough, producers also considered... <laughs> producers also considered Dudley Moore. Can you imagine that a Dudley Moore Beetlejuice? It, to, I mean... Uh, I Dudley Moore was in a movie. He was in the original Bedazzled in the '60s with Peter Cook, and Dudley Moore was like kind of the the nebbishy guy the devil screws with. But I could almost, if you reframe it as like kind of like an English trickster. What was the movie with Phoebe Cates and Rick Mayall? Oh, uh, Drop Dead Fred. Drop Dead Fred. Yeah, I almost see that. I could almost see that working. I can I can see that as this is like the weird upside down version of. What's the famous Dudley Moore movie? Arthur. 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 Yeah. 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 As, like the upside down <laughs> version of Arthur. So producers were considering Dudley Moore and also comedian. And also comedian Sam Kinison. <laughs> which, 
That would have been turn. awful. That would have immediately Although consigned Kinnison's this. Although manager supposedly never bothered to inform Sam Kinison um, of the studio's interest. Uh, I imagine when Kinison finally learned about it, he screamed about it. <laughs> that probably <laughs> would have immediately consigned this to the dustbin of, dustbin of history. Can you imagine how oh, grating he would have been in this? Like, Just completely one note. Yeah, what are you just talking gacked about? out of his mind. Like, oh, no. Don't you just hate it when that happens? Good move, Sam Kinison's manager, circa 1985. <laughs> Thank you for saving us all from a terrible fate. Well, back to Michael Keaton. I'm legally obligated to mention the fact that Michael Keaton's first show business uh, job was working for Mr. Rogers as a stagehand. Aww. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's why he's been in a bunch of like Mr. Rogers specials and documentaries. And also, Mikey Keaton, that's so cute. Right? And I also didn't realize until watching a like a that i think it was on amazon or something a docuseries on the comedy store the famous club in la i had no idea that he was a stand-up that was like came up with the same class with david letterman and jay leno and all those people in the late 70s i, did, I didn't know that i didn't think i, I don't think hmm. i knew he was from pittsburgh that's wild that's your takeaway yes <laughs> okay. more importantly so uh burton was talking to the independent in that aforementioned interview and said uh michael keaton michael keaton is a maniac a live wire and he's got these he's got those great eyes and a lot of the stuff in the film was improvised uh i would go over to michael's house and the two of us would come up with jokes it was really fun because we were essentially creating a character and this improvisation that the two of them had going on uh in pre-pro uh, continued on set with Keaton telling Rolling Stone, you show up on the set and you just go f***ing nuts. <laughs> it was rave acting. <laughs> you rage for 12 or 14 hours and then you go home tired and beat and exhausted. Uh, it was pretty damned cathartic. He also added, I started thinking about my hair. <laughs> my acting choices. I wanted my hair to stand out like I was wired and plugged in. And once I started getting that, I actually made myself laugh. And I thought, well, this is a good sign. This is kind of funny. And then I got the attitude. And once I got the basic attitude, it really started to roll, despite all of that. He only filmed for about two weeks, which that's hilarious. Yeah, the, all the, of the ad-libbing, he said, uh, Alec Baldwin said that the, the part where he goes, uh, he like hawks up a loogie and spits it into the inside of his jacket and then pats it and says, oh, I'll save that one for later. Um, <laughs> Alec Baldwin said he almost choked when he saw him do that. And it's such an aside, too. It's such a throwaway joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first thing I remember writing about the character or saying to Keaton about the character was, he's Groucho Marx from hell <laughs> yeah <laughs> which uh that that quote comes from larry wilson uh to yahoo keaton supposedly also said elsewhere that he was inspired by bill mosley's performance as chop top one of the murderous rednecks in the texas chainsaw massacre 2 which actually that, that it makes, it makes entirely too much sense and it's really funny because it would have come out like right around that time um and uh Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is such a wild departure from the first one in in terms of it's going for like this really insane. It's basically where uh, Rob Zombie has gotten his entire career from. It's going for this really mm -hmm. like funhouse demented uh um 
comedy. The poster was famously a, a, a parody of the Breakfast Club poster. And Bill Mosley is so obnoxious in that movie. And like, it's so fun. It's so perfect to me that, that Michael Keaton would have seen it and been like, yeah, I want to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that. Michael Keaton have a Coke problem. Just watching this movie kind of makes me think maybe. It's possible. It's see, apparently in the musical, apparently one of the things in the musical that critics didn't like was uh, uh, Beetlejuice does a line. Uh, they, they thought that was in poor taste. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. So Oscar-winning makeup artist V. Neal said that when she first copied some of Burton's sketches of the character onto Keaton, the results were actually too scary and not silly enough. Um, we've talked a lot about, uh, Burton has talked a lot about German expressionism, but um, the, the the film with such a punchline these days, uh, Portlandia has a whole sketch about people getting it from Netflix and never watching it is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And um, <laughs> in that movie, you see the big, like, grease paint circles around the eyes. And so that was, uh, and, and the vertical lines of the suit. Um, there's also parts of the uh, architecture in the afterlife that have that, the sort of canted um, hallway angles descending into, into the distance. So that was, it, it's a through line in all of Burton's career. But this was, I think, more than Pee Wee, the first movie where he really got to flex that as an influence. Um so they did make some changes. Uh, they went with pale yellow makeup bordering on white uh, for his skin, pale green hair dye for the wig, purple and brown makeup for the giant under eye circles, and uh, one very specific tool 
to make him look like he had mold on him because Keaton and Burton decided that Beetlejuice lived under rocks. Uh, Neil recalled to Yahoo, I sent a PA off to the hobby store and I said, get me some crushed green foam like they use on model kits for moss and stuff like that. I said, we'll put some moss in his hair. We'll just make it look like he crawled out from underneath a rock. So I got this crushed green foam and I painted up the areas where I wanted it to come out. I wanted it to look like he was creeping out from underneath his hairline and his neck and stuff. I just stuck it on wherever the glue was. Hollywood. Gluing <laughs> hobby foam onto your lead actor. Uh, Keaton, for some reason, also wanted Beetlejuice to have a broken nose, uh, but the makeup team didn't have any prosthetic noses. But what they did have were prosthetic lips. <laughs> so they just put fake lips on either side of his nose to make it look uh, more bulbous. Um, and one of Burton's Gnostic proclamations to Keaton that the, the character of Beetlejuice lived in every time period, but was of no time period. So Keaton got his wardrobe for the character by uh, saying to wardrobe uh, the wardrobe department, he said, just send me a rack of stuff from every time period, like literally a whole rack, and I will just mix and match. Uh, and when he said, and, and he, I think he said in a different interview that when he came onto set for the first time, he was worried that he'd pushed it too far with uh with the look and uh the the crowd just or the crew just started chanting juice at him uh which maybe they thought oj was there that day but um <laughs> that joke gonna land test oh, oh, oh okay you were you were, you were you're just giving it space to breathe i was yeah you know it's like in annie hall when uh woody allen snorts the or, or sneezes and blows the cocaine everywhere they got such a huge laugh in theaters that they had to extend like, the frame. add like yeah, yeah, yeah. roll of palm trees or something afterwards because it was stepping on the next line in the next scene. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Uh, test audience has responded so well to Michael Keaton, who amazingly doesn't appear in this movie until 45 minutes and is only on screen for something like 20 minutes. Uh, that audience has actually rejected the original ending that had him trapped in the Maitland's model home and plagued by sandworms. So a newer, more comedic ending with him in the afterlife waiting room was filmed where he gets his head shrunk. Yeah. In. I had that. Sorry. I spoilers. had that action figure, uh, of, of him with the shrunken head. And, and another fun fact, the, the legs, he's like seated in between a woman who has been bisected. I think she's supposed to be like a magician's assistant who died in an onstage accident. And the legs are played by, uh, Tim Burton's then girlfriend, which, you know, we'll get to this later, but Tim Burton, must be slinging some dong like you wouldn't believe <clears throat> because that guy punches above his weight man Helena Helena Bonham Bonham you know who his current girlfriend is Tell monica me. friggin bellucci i'm telling you tim burton monster dong you heard it here first on tmi that's our pool quote <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, allegedly monster dong allegedly. he's probably just also like a nice guy jordan what are your I, thoughts mm. on uh tim burton's monster dong that's what played the sandwich <laughs> Actually, I was not able to find out if those are an obvious Dune rip, but they seem like an obvious Dune rip. Um, not just because Lydia comes back in riding it at the end, desert planet, giant worms. Feels like maybe I just see Dune and everything. No, I think that this one is pretty plainly obvious. That is funny that she would be the, the Shai Halud. What is it? Muad'Dib. Oh, Paul Muad'Dib. The Paul, yeah. Now I'm just looking at like those listicles that are like I'm looking at right now from the clever.com. 15 beautiful women who fell in love with ugly guys. <laughs> oh, 
about I didn't say he was Ward. ugly. I just oh. said he's punching above his weight. I knew what it meant. <laughs> Felicity Huffman and William H. Macy. Yeah. Polina Perskova. Oh, Rick Ocasek. That was a crazy one. Yeah, that dude looked like a praying mantis. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these are like old rock stars like Ronnie Wood who are married to like 25-year-old ballerinas. That's yeah. not fair. Salma Hayek and a guy who looks like Gene Hackman. Oh, but that dude's like that dude's like loaded. He's like a billionaire, I think. Salma Hayek's husband. Sure. Well, yes. But okay. Julia Roberts and I love it. A guy. No, but I love it was going to be my yeah. runner up. Amber Tamblyn and David Cross. Hmm. Oh, come Aww. on. Christina Hendricks and that guy who was uh the Snozberries taste like Snozberries yeah. from Super Troopers. Yeah. What's his name? Uh, Jeffrey Arnand? Yeah. Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard. Mm. Mary-Kate Olsen and Sarkozy. <laughs> Dax Shepard is not a bad-looking guy. No. <laughs> Tina Fey and a guy who looks like Peter Dinklage. Oh. Um, Padma Lakshi. Padma Lakshi was with Salman Rushdie? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Post-fatwa. And number one on this list? Catherine Zeta Jones and Michael Douglas? Nah. Michael like, Douglas. Yeah. Michael Douglas was swanging some hog in the 80s. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He the, the Gordon yeah. Gecko. Come on. So the role of the goth teenager, Lydia Deeds. I am jumping on this. Please. Um, the role of the goth teenager, Lydia Deeds, was difficult to fill as well. So also up for the role was Sarah Jessica Parker. I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> Brooke Shields. Jennifer Connelly mm. would have killed this. And Molly Ringwald mm. um, all turned down the role. Juliette Lewis auditioned for the part. She would have been good. She does too much. Um, but the person who got closest to it and didn't get it was Alyssa Milano, who admitted to HuffPost Live in 2016 that she really wanted that part. You can't have it. <laughs> it was between the two of us and Winona Ryder actually got the part. I always wonder what would have happened differently in my life had that worked out. Uh, not that I would want it to be any different, but it's just an interesting thought game. I believe you. <laughs> Burton had just seen 16-year-old Winona Ryder debut in the 1986 coming-of-age story, Lucas. Uh, in an interview with Marie Claire, Ryder said that uh, she was bullied at school before her film career and that she had hoped that her appearance in Beetlejuice would make her more <laughs> popular. It did not. I remember thinking, oh, it's like the number one movie. This is going to make things great at school. But it made things worse. They called me a witch. That's um, so funny. I know what you're talking so about. That's so sad for her. Co-writer Larry Wilson revealed in an oral history for CBC Radio that he found inspiration for Lydia while seeing, again, Robert Smith is going to just be a, a, a tertiary character throughout this entire episode. Uh, he found inspiration for Lydia while seeing The Cure perform in concert and looking at the young woman, looking at the young women in the audience, which, uh, of course. I just want to shout out Mermaids with Winona Ryder and Cher. <laughs> you love Holy that rules. movie. <laughs> I mean, Cher in that movie? Oh, my God. You've, this, you've mentioned that movie quite a lot, actually. I know you're tired. Just saying, just saying. Uh, have, you, have you not seen it? I, not in years. Oh, it holds up. Mermaids is great. Uh, Angelica Houston was initially cast as the Dietz family's art-damaged matriarch. 
but dropped out due to illness. So Catherine O'Hara, <laughs> the great Catherine O'Hara, who also initially passed on the part, nobody wanted to be in this goddamn movie. <laughs> she came on board when Tim Burton flew out to meet with her personally. Burton later told The Independent, the only person who initially really wanted to do it was Gina Davis, though it did end up working out for Catherine O'Hara, who met and eventually married production designer Bo Welsh while working on Beetlejuice. Yeah, uh, apparently the scene where Beetlejuice eats the fly is a wink at the at the fact Gina Davis had been in the fly. Um, oh, super funny to me. That's great. But yeah, I love the fact that she was the only one who was like gung-ho for this. <laughs> Uh, Catherine O'Hara has a pretty great anecdote about her non-audition <laughs> for Beetlejuice. Uh, she's talking to the New Yorker very recently. She uh, said, I've been asked to audition for Beetlejuice. I had all these calls with David Geffen, who was a producer. I didn't know him at the time. Out of ignorance, I was like, who is this guy? He's bugging me. Keeps calling <laughs> and saying, this is a part for you. You should be doing this. He kept calling. Then they said they wanted me to meet this guy, Tim Burton. I didn't know Tim Burton. And finally, I was depressed at home and I had nothing going. I said, okay, I'll go to audition. I'll go meet him. I was so sad that I decided to meet him. <laughs> That's a, an incredible metric for depression. So she flew to LA from Toronto and I rented a car, she said. The address was in Burbank. I drove for hours. I thought, what kind of director is this far from show business? I was so late. I got lost. There was no cell phone. I had to pull over somewhere and find a phone booth and phone my agent. Finally, two hours late, I got to Burbank. There was a note on the door from Tim Burton. It said, I'm sorry. I waited as long as I could. I go back home to Toronto. And a few weeks later, they offer me the part. That turned out well for her. <laughs> Funnily enough, though, Gina Davis, despite being stoked on the film, wasn't Burton's initial choice for the character of Barbara Maitland. I read that Kirstie Alley was... Uh, and that she couldn't get out of her Cheers contract to shoot. Um, but, adorably, this was the first set on which Gina Davis's parents got to actually come see her work. Um, the Beetlejuice was shot in Aww. Vermont, and her parents lived close enough by that they came and visited her on set, bearing baked goods uh, for Gina to uh, distribute to the rest of the cast. Uh, she wrote this in her memoir. Oh. Um, and that and then an assistant director used her parents uh, as extras in a scene to keep them busy. <laughs> it's adorable. Uh, Alec Baldwin, who plays the other half of the Maitlands, uh, did not have high hopes for the film. He was talking about it to, uh, to GQ, and he said, When we did Beetlejuice, I had no idea what it was about. I thought my, all of our, careers are going to end with the release of this film. Maybe we're all going to be dead. <laughs> uh, hilarious. Oh, yeah. That hasn't aged well. Ah, Baldwin's a prick. No. Uh, <laughs> yes, he is. Tim Burton then proceeded to stack the rest of the cast with his favorite celebrities from bygone eras. 60s crooner Robert Goulet and talk show host Dick Cavett. Robert Goulet. Uh, are given roles as the Deet's snobby friends. And Burton hounded uh, Hollywood Silver Age actress... Sylvia Sidney incessantly until she agreed to play the salty undead social worker Juno. I just want to like praise the fact that you just said Sylvia Sidney incessantly. I'm a damn professional. You know? uh, her appearance in Mars Attacks a few years later in 1996 was her last role. So she she made friends with Tim Burton. Uh, there's a piece about the uh, making of Beetlejuice for the Ringer, and one of the, someone recalls uh, s um, <laughs> Sylvia Sidney opening a. Um, gift basket she'd gotten from the hotel while chain smoking and just exclaiming what the f am i supposed to do with a pineapple jordan take dick cavett i know you love dick cavett 
I love Dick Cavett. Uh, Dick Cavett actually saved the day when making this movie. It was in the, when they were filming the iconic dinner scene. He told Yahoo that Tim Burton was running into difficulty getting the final shots in which the shrimp cocktail turns into hands ooh, that grab the guests and host faces into their bowls. <laughs> because SFX workers were under the table and couldn't actually see who they were grabbing, they kept missing their marks. So Dick Cavett suggested they film that part in reverse, and Burton thought that was a great idea and decided to do just that. He filmed some takes of the hands grabbing the star's faces, then lowering back down into the table. And then, uh, I don't know who this is, so Heigl, tell us about Jeffrey Jones. <laughs> oh, do we have to talk about <laughs> Jeffrey Jones? Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know who's Jeffrey Jones. Heigl, tell us about the pederast. Uh, Jeffrey Jones, oh. the actor who plays Lydia's dad, oh. and perhaps more famously, the dean in Ferris Bueller. Oh. Yeah, he was arrested for possession of child pornography in 2002 and accused of a 17-year-old boy who was 14 at the time the offense allegedly occurred of uh, trying to get the... Uh, Jeffrey wanted to take some some bathing suit area pictures of of this youth. Uh, Jones... Can I just say, um, sometimes you can judge a book by cover. <laughs> he does have that aura about him. Uh, Jones pleaded no contest to a charge of soliciting a minor, and uh, the misdemeanor charge of possession of child pornography was dropped. But uh, despite getting off relatively lightly with a five-year probationary period, he was arrested twice for failing to update his sex offender status, first in Florida in 2004, and then six years later in California. So, folks, watch out for Jeffrey Jones. He could be anywhere. <laughs> we should have cut that off at the pass and just arrested him after Howard the Duck. <laughs> oh, God. So, that unpleasantness aside, moving on. Principal photography on Beetlejuice began March 11th, 1987. Beetlejuice's uh, budget was $15 million with just $1 million given over to visual effects work, which, knowing the visual effects in this movie, that is very surprising yeah. to me. Considering the scale and scope of the effects, uh, which included stop motion, replacement animation, prosthetic makeup, puppetry, blue screen, it was always Burton's intention to make the style similar to the, the B-movies that he grew up with as a child. Uh, he said, I wanted to make them look cheap and purposely fake-looking, <laughs> he said uh, to Mark Shapiro in 88. We went big and more personal with them. What people will see are effects that are, in a sense, a step backwards. They're crude, they're funky, but they're also very personal. Aww. Case in point, the animatronic snake that attacks them, the, the, the banister that turns into a snake. Uh, was actually built before Keaton was cast. Producers were concerned that the audiences uh, wouldn't connect that the snake was simply a random monster, so they had to pivot and outfit it with a brand new head that looks like Keaton as Beetlejuice, and then they reshot it. Yeah, they, they, for the scene when the Maitlands come back uh, into their home after drowning and realize they don't have any reflections, um, they, they just reversed the set. Like, they pulled the wall back around, and they just moved one of the walls back so that they could film it through the mirror. It's just really, like, just really old-timey, like, the shit they would do, you know, back in, back in the day. Uh, Tim Burton had wanted to hire a guy named Anton First as production designer after being impressed with his work on Neil Jordan's pre-crying game masterpiece, the fairy tale sex drama The Company of Wolves, Fairy tale werewolf sex drama, I should say, and also Full Metal Jacket, another movie you may have heard of. Uh, although first was committed elsewhere, and so Burton went with Bo Welch. 
Uh, this turned out to be a fruitful collaboration. The pair continued to work together on Edward Scissorhands and Batman Returns. Uh, Bo Welch told Uproxx, When I met Tim, it was like a breath of fresh air in terms of liberating me from dreary realism. He would push me towards German expressionism and reference other movies. He was always a fan of the old horror movies, but he would view them with a sense of humor. In that period when you try and wrap your head around his aesthetic, you learn. It was a fantastic experience that I changed the way I approach movies from then on. I'm really curious, Heigl, because I think among the three of us, you are the horror movie connoisseur. So can you maybe talk about like Burton as like sort of a conduit? It is interesting. Like the person, like he's the filmmaker to horror movies as like, Tarantino is to Grindhouse. Um, he isn't. He isn't. I don't think he's. He he comes from. I think he's of the age that he missed the Grindhouse stuff because not a lot of his movies have that really nasty seventies sensibility. He's definitely like an atomic age, fifties uh, mm. B guy, I, and I think it's an interesting divide because, um even though he's sort of the same age as some of the the people who we associate with the big 70s uh, auteur era of horror, like John Carpenter and Wes Craven, there's it's just like a they were freshmen when he was a senior or, or vice versa thing because like their set of influences are so different. Even though, you know, um, a lot of people talk about German expressionism, like, oh, you know, I really wanted to use uh, the angles you find in uh, German expressionism. And also like, you know, another big one is Night of the Hunter. Like, if you talk to uh, scratch any like six horror directors, and and they'll five of them will, will say, "Well, I'm really influenced by the the lighting and use of shadow in Night of the Hunter." Um, so you see that a lot. Isn't one of John Carpenter's big ones? John Carpenter, weirdly or, um, enough, is is obsessed with, and this is what I say. This is why, again, it's like it's like two roads diverged in a wood because John Carpenter's influences were westerns. He was obsessed with Howard Hawks and 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 Rio Bravo and and like the searchers and stuff. So again, same period of media, like the fifties and stuff, just Tim Burton was like, uh, I like the, the flying saucer men pictures and the guys in rubber suits. And John Carpenter was like, ah, you know, I just like Westerns, but I, I'll make spooky movies in, uh, instead of Western. I don't think he's ever made a pure Western. Um, except for maybe John Carpenter's vampires, which is a real piece of shit. Uh, but, but Burton is really funny because, you know, being from California and not from like the dismal industrial environs that influenced like David Lynch or, uh, you know, um, the Midwest where everything is just uh, up and sad, I guess. Um, citation needed. Sorry to our listeners in the Midwest. Uh, you know, you get that like lounge fifties lounge vibe and like rayon shirts and and uh you know uh vibraphone music instead of instead of like slasher stuff like i could never imagine tim burton doing a slasher even something like sleepy hollow which is probably as close as he would ever actually get to that is so much more informed by like uh uh like hammer horror yes, films. exactly gothic horror and that's the big thing that people uh, yeah, he's probably, a, I would, I mean, I don't think I've read interviews where he's talked about it, but I wager this Hammer 60s stuff was a big thing for him as well. People in frock coats. Yeah, I'm thinking now about the aesthetics of, like, Edward Scissorhands, yeah. the, the, the pastel houses, yeah. the, the, just the California yep. vibe. Yeah, it's Orange County by way of, uh, you know, Transylvania. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So to find the fictional town of Winter River, Connecticut, uh, in which Beetlejuice is set early on in production, Tim Burton, production designer Bo Welch, and line producer Richard Hashimoto went location scouting in Vermont. And in Bo Welch's words, they drove aimlessly from one end of Vermont to the other. Eventually, we went into a couple of bookstores or gas stations and kept seeing this postcard over and over for this little town called East Corinth, Vermont. We saw it enough times where we thought, well, that one looks great. <laughs> Art director Tim Duffield finished interior sets in Los Angeles and then flew to East Corinth to dress the town and construct the Maitland's home. The hardest part of all this was that they couldn't find a town that had a covered bridge, like your classic archetypal New England covered bridge thing. So they just built one. Uh, and the weather did not cooperate. Uh, Duffield said, we kept having thunderstorms. We had to build a big dam to control the water level, and a thunderstorm would come by and blow it all away. But the town still has a lot of the stuff that we left there. Just like filming in, uh, uh, what was it, Nambia or, uh, no, Tunisia. <laughs> for Tunisia. For Star Wars. Um, Jordan, take us home. Welch and Duffield also describe their vision of the afterlife as, quote, the DMV through a German expressionist lens. Uh, Welch came up with the concept of the Johnson Wax Building in Oklahoma, which was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, with these posts that were spread out at the top. They look like golf. They look like and golf that's all tees. Built in. They look like if this. Oh my God, In this building, right. it just looks like they're 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 you know pillars that are skinny at the bottom and blossom at the top, and it just looks like. The whole interior is, is supported by golf tees. <laughs> and those are all built in, but they're also extended by a matte painting. And I, I love how much you love matte oh. painting in describing special effects. Is that your favorite film special effect? It's either that or the smoke tank. <laughs> I do love the, oh, I love love the, the smoke, smoke tank. tank. The smoke tank looks badass. Yeah. Once you start seeing, what were we just talking about? That for? Uh, Raiders, Indiana yeah, Jones. Raiders, Indiana Jones, uh, yeah. Close Encounter. It's in. Uh, it's the opening credits in the thing. Um, right. Love a smoke tank. As for why <laughs> most of the dead are like, you know, kind of candy colored, Tim Burton wanted them to look like Necco wafers. <laughs> Friend of the pod, Necco wafers, <laughs> made from my hometown, Boston, Massachusetts. Went out of business, stopped making them, and then somebody paid like five bucks, and now they have the rights to make them, and they're like trying to rebuild the factory in Boston. There's a, a little place uh, called Necco Lane. Yeah, a truly disgusting candy. Yes. Delicious chalk-flavored <laughs> catechism wafers. Is it candy-flavored chalk or chalk-flavored candy? Yeah, yeah it's, it's your, yeah, I don't, it's I don't your, know which. It's your Boston-ass... Yeah, come thing, on. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, Welch's sculptures he created for Delia have proven so iconic that people have already stolen them off the set of the currently shooting sequel. I tried and so hard to find an interview with him where he talks about what he was influenced by for those sculptures. I could not find it. Um, very bummed about it, but they are iconic for anyone who, who if you know, you know. Lydia Deeds shouts Lydia, to Lydia. If you insist on scaring people, do it with your sculpture. <laughs> so getting the Maitlands to their caseworker in the afterlife proved to be confusing. We just couldn't figure it out. Uh, screenwriter Larry Wilson told The Independent. I kept coming up with more convoluted ways that they could escape the house, and Michael would just sit there and say, no, no, no. I finally got really mad and said, well, what do you want them to do? Draw, on a, draw an effing door? <laughs> and we just started laughing, because that was perfect. And if you recall from the movie, that's exactly what they do. Isn't that also what she does in um, Pan's Labyrinth? Ooh. I think you're right. And it must be said, 
in yes. Russ's words, towards the end of the movie, Tim told me, we were shooting in Vermont, you should ask Catherine out. And I said, what? He said, yeah, you should ask her out. It didn't even occur to me that I was even supposed to talk to the actors. But since Tim told me to, I did. And then we dated and we're married and we're here today. So good on you. I know. If Welch. nothing else, Beetlejuice gave us the happy marriage of Catherine O'Hara and Bo Welch. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, for them. it's adorable. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Jordan, I know you've I know you want to do this. I've been waiting for this, yes. Heigl's title of this section, come Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. And that's because we're gonna talk about one of my favorite people, Harry Belafonte. Where were we Jordan and I were just talking about Harry Belafonte <laughs> earlier today. Oh yes, the clip on the Smothers Brothers. The yes, the of the the beatings in Chicago in sixty eight. Yeah. Uh famous like not just as a singer, but as a civil rights icon. Insane level of activism considering just how straight-laced mainstream everything was back then. So also we learned, uh, as we learned in our We Are the World episode, architect of uh, the We Are the World charity single. So, I mean, you know, pound for pound, when you really think about it, probably raised more money for charity than, jeez, oh, I mean... Anyone. <laughs> on the short list of celebrities, I'd have to say. So... We Take that, Bob Kelthoff. 
Take that, Bono. Uh, but we're going to investigate right now the most iconic scene in Beetlejuice in which the Maitlands turn a dinner party into a show-stopping possession. Jazz hands. Thanks to Harry Belafonte's Deo, the Banana Boat song. Can you? Can either one of you give us a give us a Deo? <laughs> Deo. I'm sorry. That was me more. Said that, me said more that, Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Daylight come and me one go home. Just watching that come out of really just good. watching that come out of Catherine O'Hara's face and her performance, like she deserves an Oscar for that scene alone. Just the way that she's like shocked by it, it's so <laughs> ah, perfect scene. <laughs> now for the song itself, it dates back to 1952. The Caribbean singer. Edric Connor recorded it first, calling it Day Dalight. Day Dalight. Day Dalight. <laughs> but it's obviously Hera Belafonte's song in the popular consciousness. So in 1986, David Geffen, who remembers producer behind this film, or at least owned, ran the studio that produced it, called Harry personally and explained the film to him. Belafonte later told Pitchfork in 2018, I never had a request <laughs> like that before. We talked briefly. I liked the idea of Beetlejuice. I liked him. No one said that about David Geffen before. <laughs> and I agreed to do it. What was particularly attractive was that he wanted to use my voice. I want, I desperately want a yeah, dude, this phone. To be, that, to yeah, be a oh fly God, on that wall. <laughs> a man who has done nothing for charity as far as I know. <laughs> no, I don't know. Maybe he has. Belafonte's songs are used all throughout Beetlejuice. During the opening scene, Alec Baldwin listens to Sweetheart from Venezuela, and shortly thereafter, dances to Man Smart, Woman Smarter, <laughs> before the real estate broker interrupts. And after the couple realize they're dead, Deo plays faintly as Gina Davis flips through the handbook for the recently deceased, planting the song in viewers' heads. And then, of course, Winona Ryder celebrates acing a math test by having her ghost parents possess her so she can sing Jump in the Line, Shake Senora, which is a song that Heigl requested I play when I DJed his wedding two years ago. And it killed. And it killed. <laughs> yes. So the addition uh, in the original script for that dinner party possession, there wasn't even supposed to be music. Um, screenwriter Larry Wilson told Pitchfork that when he and McDowell, uh, their concept for the dinner party scene is that one of the guests spilled a glass of wine on a on a rug with a floral design, and then that the rug sprouted vines and wrapped up the guests, which is you know visually appealing, doesn't have quite the same verve. So the addition of the music is believed to have been the work of the punch up writer we mentioned earlier, Warren Scarin but he did not envision it with Harry Belafonte. The dinner scene was supposed to feature the Ink Spots, 1939's hit If I Didn't Care. And as we mentioned earlier, Lydia was supposed to sing When a Man Loves a Woman uh, at the end of the film. But, uh, is that, sorry, is that Ink Spots song? Is that the song that opens up the Shawshank Redemption? Ooh, great pool. You might be right. If right? I didn't yeah, care, yeah, yeah, yeah. more than words could say, um, if I didn't care, <laughs> Would I feel this way? Jordan? <laughs> M moving on. Yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, Good ear. So Good Geffen ear. exec Marjorie Lewis, though, told The Ringer that these songs were prohibitively expensive. Every time somebody heard the words David Geffen, she said, they raised the price. 
<laughs> uh, Jeffrey Jones told Pitchfork that Catherine O'Hara was the person who suggested Calypso would bring more energy to the scene. She really is the MVP of this film. Bob Badami, the film's music editor, told Pitchfork that Tim Burton worried about the scene a lot. He didn't think it was very funny. Uh, and obviously, he needn't have worried. Uh, the scene and the film's success prompted a resurgence in Belafonte's career. He told Pitchfork, everywhere I went for about a year, I had kids all over me. Oh, the guy from Beetlejuice. Wiping their hands full of tomato ketchup and mustard on my clothes. <laughs> that is not a quote I made up. That is in the actual article. I have no idea why that is his recollection of his career resurgence following Beetlejuice. It was children with their hands full of tomato ketchup and mustard. Uh, but he did say... Because, I mean, if you know Belafonte, he's always dressed impeccably. Yeah, impeccable linen and white. And he's always yeah. wearing, playing hot dog festivals. <laughs> but he said he enjoyed the whole excursion. And when Glenn Shattuck, who played Otho, Otho, it's Otho, uh, play, died in 2010, they played Deo at his funeral. Um, Burton ended up uh, battling the studio over that scene. They wanted it cut. Um, but they, as we mentioned earlier, they were also agitating for the name House Ghosts. Um, speaking of which, uh, what, what the hell's going on with the title of this film? A thing that I did not pick up on until I was like a teenager. The fact that Beetlejuice is named after an actual star in the Orion constellation. The ninth brightest star in Earth's night sky, by the way. But his name is spelled completely differently. What's up with that? What's the deal? With, nope, we're not finishing that. The way it's supposed to be spelled looks terrible. Sure does. Poster. Yeah, way grabbier to be to be Beetlejuice. The you know, the, the Beetle yeah. guys. I didn't realize it was a real place until weirdly recently, because I remember it being uh, referenced in Hitchhiker's Guide to the oh, Galaxy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And I thought that Douglas Adams had made that up too. So. <laughs> It does sound like it would have been. Uh, who wants to take Danny Elfman? I'm going to queue up the video. Special mention must go out, of course, to Danny Elfman. The curiously ripped Danny yeah, Elfman. right? Um, <laughs> and his work scoring the film. So Danny Elfman said, I wrote music before I saw a rough cut of anything. He told he was talking to GQ, uh, actually this year, 2023. I had a little extra time and thought I'd get started. I read the script. I wrote a bunch of music. It all got thrown away. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, this is not the movie I was imagining in my head. Uh, this is something else completely. It was a really deceptively hard score to play. I didn't realize it at the time. Just the simplicity of really strict time. So half the brass section going off beats like that. And there's a tendency to want to let it swing. It's like, no, 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 no. And poor tuba player is like turning blue without a break just like on and on and on and on and on they tried to record it in england like for a best of album the conductor in england looked at the score and they started playing he picked it up and he threw it on the floor and he said this is unplayable and it's like i'm enjoying this danny elfman's so annoying um, yeah, thank you. Okay, I was I was <laughs> waiting for everyone to stop so I could make that observation. I I love a lot. Of, I mean, I love Nightmare Before Christmas so much, but I I listened. I was somehow I ended up watching like three movies that he scored right in a row. I think I talked about this on a different episode, uh, but 
he has so many ticks that he uses uh, over and over yeah. again. And it's like, I mean, I think of that throwaway gag on Family Guy where they have him like, uh, he, it like cuts to him doing like, in front of a, a, a symphony or whatever. And Stewie just goes, that's enough, Danny Elfman. Uh, so uh, Elfman also said, I didn't realize in hindsight how lucky I was that when we did the these movies, nobody was paying attention to us. They were small enough budgets that we could do them, and nobody from the studio ever showed up saying, can you play us some of the music? There were no presentations. It was just Tim and I. It was really kind of like two kids in the kindergarten class, and the teacher leaves, and they're just like running their own class. Their friendship is really adorable. I just Those two little weirdos found each other. Danny Elfman with his like closet of haunted Victorian dolls in his home studio. <laughs> Made for just thirteen million, Beetlejuice went on to grow seventy-five million in the U.S. and spawned an animated series and a stage show at Universal Studios Theme Park. It also won the Academy Award for Best Makeup in nineteen eighty-nine. So all worked out for that moss gather. <laughs> Academy <laughs> Award-winning film Beetlejuice. <laughs> And it triumphed over some pretty heavy hitters, including Rick Baker's work for Coming to America. Which is, you know, where um, he's got Eddie Murphy playing four guy, the four guys in the in the barbershop. And Arcidia Hall playing yes. multiple characters. Yeah, so the fact that M- Michael Keaton's Moss makeup won. I wasn't able to find out who did the prosthetics for the, um, when they stretch their face, when she stretches her face into like the bird beak thing. Because uh, that's like one of the more indelible images in that movie for me. See, and this is all stuff that I really, as a kid, just creep. Yeah, out. but it's like cartoony creepy. creepy. It, again, Orchard Haunted House. Come on. Uh, it is legitimately funny that Alec Baldwin literally pushes his hand through the back of his head to give him, like, like yeah. the chicken yeah, yeah, grill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. And I think all of that was just Tim Burton drawing. Like, just because that's one of the other things that Alec Baldwin was like. He was like, uh, yeah, Tim didn't really give us any direction. He was just constantly sketching. <laughs> we just like look up from his sketchbook and be like, yeah, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Just go back down and keep drawing. Following the success of Beetlejuice, Warner Brothers greenlit Tim Burton's version of Batman with Michael Keaton in the lead role. And by 1990, there was also a public announcement of a sequel, Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. <laughs> With Michael Keaton, Winona Ryder, Jeffrey Jones, and Catherine O'Hara all agreeing to reprise their original roles. But then Warner Brothers, uh, the same folks who wanted to rename it House Ghosts, uh, (laughs) offered Tim Burton total creative control on Batman Returns. And so he and Keaton went off to do that instead. They chose wisely. (laughs) Meanwhile, in between, we got Beetlejuice the Animated Series, which one of the great loves of my life. (laughs) And that launched in 1989, when I was eight years old, and ran for four seasons. The show followed the wacky adventures of Beetlejuice and Lydia Dietz, who are now on friendlier <laughs> terms and voiced by different people. It was actually really well-received, winning a daytime Emmy that it shared with the new adventures of <laughs> Winnie the Pooh, and a few of its voice actors later went on to do voices in Fox's X-Men cartoon, which also rules. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Probably the craziest story that we could find about the animated series is that in 1991, 14-year-old Sharon Chamberlain, uh, who was a fan of Beetlejuice, had an idea for the animated series. Her first attempt to contact the company behind the show, uh, which was called Nelvana, that's something, <laughs> was unsuccessful. But 
she found contact information for Geffen Pictures and sent her proposal there. Geffen forwarded the idea and Nelvana bought the pitch from her for $250 or about $560 in today's money. The episode, Brides of Funkenstein, which I think is a P-Funk reference, aired as episode nine of season three. So thank you, Sharon Chamberlain, <laughs> for all of your footwork. Kind of ripped her off, though. Yeah. Did yeah, but she lives on... She, she's getting the Residuals? TMI boost. Oh, and oh man. Boost. You know, I was correct. It is P-Funk. Uh, that was um, previous background singers for Sly and the Family Stone that George Clinton put together. And one of them, Lynn Mabry, I thought her name looked familiar. She is um, uh, one of the backing singers in Stop Making Sense. Oh, so there's a, yeah, her and Bernie Worrell. So, so there's I love that I will forever love the fact that there's two members of P Funk and stop making sense. That's delightful. Uh, so Beetlejuice two is finally on the way. Uh, production began in May, uh, but with the SAG and and WGA strike, who's to say how that's this thing was originally supposed to come out next year. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, it's been written by Seth Graham Smith, the author of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Remember when those were things? Ooh. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. The likelihood of this not being terrible just went way Yeah. Down. Well, Graham Smith wrote the screenplay on the condition that Michael Keaton would return. Uh, Winona Ryder is set to come back, and so is Tim Burton. And along with them, Jenna Ortega, newly minted Scream Queen Jenna Ortega, uh, you know, best known for Wednesday, um, and her role in the Scream, the rebooted Scream franchise. Uh, Justin Theroux, for some reason, probably taking over the Alec Baldwin role. Willem Dafoe, Monica Bellucci as Beetlejuice's wife, and thankfully, Catherine O'Hara reprising her role as Delia. No, there, nobody can do it yeah. better. Yeah, honestly, and, and she's still killing it. It's not like she's retired or anything. She's, yeah. Um, Can I just say one of my biggest memories of the animated series is that the show would intercut these weird, like, computer animated uh, commercials, like from the afterlife world, like oh. throughout the show. One of them was uh, Jean Lafitte's Feet Streets for Happy Feet, <laughs> and it was like a whole jingle to go along with it it was they were literally like like milk bones that your feet would eat it was i don't <laughs> know why so i do not know why that has stuck in my memory but that that's probably somebody's birthday or phone number that i cannot remember but i do remember jean lefitte's feet streets for happy feet that's so funny uh yeah famous like kind of on google it is uh famous french privateer pirate I think there's a bar named after him in New Orleans. Um, this sequel is one of the l craziest long-awaited things to come out of Hollywood. Uh, Warren Scarin, who we mentioned was the uh, co-writer on the original film, finished a script called Beetlejuice and Love that was actually mentioned in his obituary when he died. They were like, he's recently completed, he recently completed his final screenplay for Beetlejuice and Love. Uh, that treatment featured a composer who dies while proposing to his girlfriend, and then this guy meets Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, however, immediately falls in love with his would-be fiance and attempts to escape the afterlife to find her. But that is not even the most famous unproduced Beetlejuice sequel. So the much more notorious sequel, uh, which we've mentioned once before here, well, Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian. 
which sounds like it could have been an Elvis movie. Yeah. And that worries me. Uh, the Deeses travel to Hawaii to open a resort designed by Otho. I'm liking this more and more with every word that I read, which being built on the classic ancient burial ground gets uh, Beetlejuice involved when the spirits awoken by the development hire him to sabotage the resort. Isn't so, this a Brady Bunch? <laughs> Isn't this like... You're the Brady Bunch oh, guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> while they're... Okay, so while he's there, just while he's on vacation, uh, Beetlejuice enters a surfing competition <laughs> Attempts to marry Lydia mm -hmm. again. Give it up, guy. Takes part in a running gag where he goes incognito as an oil tycoon named Monty Exxon. And That's by, great. <laughs> by the end of the film, transforms into a wrathful creature named Jucifer. Uh -huh. Also good. Also yeah, a I was going to say a doom ban. <laughs> um, summons dinosaurs and turns normal people into Neanderthals. That script went through a number of rewrites, as if we couldn't tell <laughs> just by reading that. Short description, including at one point by Kevin Smith of Clerks and Mallrats and Chasing Amy fame. Some people have suggested that Burton pitched the whole thing as a lark. This honestly, this sounds a little bit like the um, the Gladiator sequel that Nick. Oh Cave hell wrote. yeah! Except that sounds f***ing awesome, and it's a travesty it never got made. Jordan, if you're unfamiliar, yes. uh, I I he this. basically pitched a sequel where. Um, Maximus goes to the afterlife. Yeah, he's like in hell and like has to like fight his way through hell. And then I think it ends with him like he successfully escapes hell and becomes like an immortal soldier. And it was going to end with this like long montage of him like fighting in every war, which is That's cool hilarious. as hell. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's not. It's like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump when they show that all his ancestors have died in all of American War. Why do you got? Why do you, you bring the vibe down like that? Um, yeah, the, the, it's really funny. Ke Kevin Smith's like one degree of separation from Tim Burton because he was uh, doing. He was tapped at one point to write the um, script for uh, Burton's Superman movie, and that is where the famous John oh. Peters of A Star Is Born fame, being obsessed with giant spiders, comes from. <laughs> We were just talking yeah, about Yeah, because that. it's yeah. that leads directly to Wild Wild Exactly. West. Well, so that this all comes from like one of the remember when Kevin Smith was doing like proto podcasts where he would just like show up at a lecture hall and just talk about his wacky misadventures in Hollywood. This story comes from one of these things where he talks about being in a room with with John Peters and he's working on the Superman script with uh that Nick Cage when Nick Cage was starring and Tim Burton was going to direct and Peters was producing and he was like, "All right, I'll tell you what you got to do. You got to have Superman fight a giant spider at the end of the movie. And Kevin Smith was like, uh, why? And, and, P and P <laughs> Peters was like, Peters Fair was question. like, oh, well, they're the most deadly predator, like for, for their size. Or he said something ridiculous like that. And, um, that's, and, and then Smith is now talking to, I think Warner brothers or whatever studio is. He was like, yeah, yeah. I met with John Peters and, um, it, it was kind of a weird meeting and they go, did he bring up the giant spider? And he was like, yeah, what's with that guy and giant spiders? And then, so of course, Kev, the button on this anecdote that Kevin Smith is telling is that years later, he goes to see Wild Wild West, which is produced by John Peters. And sure enough, they fight a giant spider at the end. <laughs> that story gets funnier because in Licorice Pizza, the most recent PTA film, John Peters is played by Bradley Cooper. And there's a line when he's talking to the kid played by 
Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, he says, you know what? I like you. We're the same. We're both from the streets. That is apparently something John Peters said to Kevin Smith. <laughs> so this Kevin Smith, Kevin Smith's like one interaction with John Peters has pr- given us such a wealth of things. And that f***ing Superman, Nick Cage as Superman fighting a giant spider made it into the Flash this year. Spoilers. There's like a whole thing with like this multiverse bit in Flash and they go and show a bunch of different Supermen. They show Christopher Reeves. They show uh, George Reed. And then they show Nick Cave, Nick Cave, Nick Cage fighting a giant spider. All done CGI. It all looks, uh, it's an abomination. But there is a secret, you know, Kevin Smith's giant spider story with John Peters is like one of the most... Uh, influential oral history bits in in American cinema in the past thirty years. So, t- drink that in. This I love this unified theory. I, I mean, Smith. yeah, dude. Um, yeah. Anyway, so this screenwriter Jonathan Gems said at one point that he he didn't actually know if Burton was being serious about any of this. He said Tim just thought it would be funny to match the surfing backdrop of a beach movie with some sort of German expressionism. Because they're totally wrong together. (laughs) Uh, But he got distracted by the Batman movies. And then I guess uh, there was a protracted rights battle with Geffen that scotched the sequel for the intervening two decades. Uh, Because in 2011, writers David Katzenberg and the aforementioned Seth Graham Smith uh, were reported to be taking their shot at it. And then that draft was rewritten by a guy named Mike Vukadinovich. I don't know. Mike yes, of the, of the uh, Moscow Vukadinoviches. Um, a few <laughs> years later, in 2015, Winona Ryder confirmed to Seth Meyers that this movie was happening, although in her characteristically and adorably kind of daffy way, she didn't really seem like she should be talking about it. I think she was confused as to whether or not she could publicly talk about it. And of course, it didn't happen in 2015. Uh, and then as recently in 2010, 19, Tim Burton was doing press for Dumbo and somebody asked him about the Beetlejuice 2 thing and he was like, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But here we are. I just want to say, living in Atlanta like I do, I have a bunch of friends who work sort of mm-hmm. in the industry, um, several of whom uh, did some work on mm. Stranger Things and got to work with one own writer. And one of them said very lovingly when I asked, what is one own writer like? He kind of threw his head back, looked at the ceiling and said, oh, Winona, she is such a sweet bird lost in a house. <laughs> that scans. And I think about that at least once a week. Yeah. Well, Jordan, this, uh, this takes us into your, your personal connection with the, uh, with the Beetlejuice musical. That is right. But we did get Beetlejuice the musical from director Alex Timbers and composer and lyricist Eddie Perfect. And Anthony King, who co-wrote the book, my friend's husband. They started work on it in 2016, and Alex Timbers probably is best known for his insanely lavish adaptation of Moulin Rouge on Broadway or on the stage, I should say, which premiered in Boston at the cost of $28 million. I've seen it several times. It is pretty spectacular. When Beetlejuice the Musical opened in D.C. in 2018, it was at an insane cost of $21 million. And due to the technology involved, the creators told the Washington Post that it could not have been done 10 years ago. And Eddie Perfect also composed a musical about King Kong, which mm-hmm. is awesome. 
and apparently started writing songs for Beetlejuice as early as 2014, four full years before the show started production. I think he wrote some of the songs on spec, which is insane. It was just like, Whoa, here's some songs yeah. about Beetlejuice in case anyone wants to make a musical out of him. I don't know, <laughs> just putting that out there. Just, yeah, anyone? Anyone? The show opened in April 2019 at the Winter Garden Theater on Broadway, but uh, was not an immediate hit with critics or fans at first. But one thing that drastically helped the show was a major moment on TikTok in late 2019. I had never even heard of TikTok in late 2019. Fans in particular glommed onto the song Say My Name, not, I imagine, the Destiny's Child song. Sadly, no. And began lip-syncing and remixing it en masse, propelling it to the top of the social media internet echo chamber. But despite this, it was announced that due to the show's initial losses, Beetlejuice would be replaced by The Music Man. Despite the fact that it earned eight Tony Award nominations, including Best Musical. A Save Beetlejuice hashtag trended on Twitter, and there were multiple petitions launched, and then COVID-19 shut down the whole of Broadway anyway. What did we learn? Heigl, take <laughs> us home. Uh, yeah, it, it was nominated for one, two, three, four... Five, six, seven, eight Tonys lost every single one. The show seems like it can't. Catch I think a it break. was just in San Francisco, and I did not see it. Um, it's played in Seoul. Uh, oh. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, just like taking an annoying guy and making him even more annoying because now he has to sing all kinds of stuff. Like taking Beetlejuice and making him into a theater guy, like a theater kid. That's awful. He's already like, what's what is what's the de-evolution of a guy with stand-up comic energy? It's a theater kid, an improv guy. Well, lastly, <laughs> it's it truly is the gleeification of the cure. Yes, that's your soundbite. Just put that in. Lastly, when Netflix launched in 1998, the first DVD they ever mailed out was a copy of Beetlejuice. That's an, we should have lived with that factoid. That's incredible. I love that. Well, folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information with very special guest, Michael Alder June, all the way up from Atlanta. It's 11 o'clock for you guys. You've had a very busy day, and I talked a lot about John Peters wanting to put giant spiders in every movie. Thanks for taking the time. <laughs> and, and also Tim Burton's massive oh, yeah. hog. Yeah, Tim Burton's, yeah. Tim Burton's hog. <laughs> if you want to tweet at us about this episode please do so using the hashtag Tim Burton's hog <laughs> Tim Burton's pale goth hog <sighs> we'll catch you next time here on TMI it's Mummu July <laughs> money's all the time now entering its sixth proud month that joke you guys got a farewell? Can I f stop recording now? We're good. <laughs>Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.